This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series. I'm Melinda Penkava. In the past decade, Islam has been the subject of much talk, especially in relation to the terrorist attacks of and since 9-11. One topic of discussion has been that some terrorists, suicide bombers in particular, claim to take guidance from the Islamic holy book, the Quran. Another subject is just how widespread the support for this is, and an offshoot of that, whether other Islamic leaders criticize the terrorism forcefully enough. Which brings on the question, who speaks for Islam? That was the central theme of a conversation between two Islamic women at the Aspen Ideas Festival this month. It's that discussion we'll hear this hour on Word for Word. On the stage in Colorado were Dahlia Mogahed, executive director of the Gallup Organization Center for Muslim Studies. She's also co-author of the book, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. Joining her was Irshad Manji, a Canadian feminist and best-selling author of The Trouble with Islam Today, A Muslim's Call for Reform in Her Faith. Manji is also the creator of a new PBS documentary titled Faith Without Fear. The conversation between Irshad Manji and Dalia Mogahed was moderated by Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic magazine. Here, then, is Jeffrey Goldberg. There's confusion about Islam in the West on, 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 in many areas. One of the roots of the confusion is that it's very hard to figure out who actually, where the clerical authority resides in Islam. We are in the West trained almost on a Vatican model. There's a pope and the pope says what goes and, and, and then that's what goes. Uh, there's no pope in Islam. And, and what I was hoping you could do is talk about how, I mean, this is a subject, obviously, of many, many scholarly works over hundreds of years, but if you could take a minute and a half, each of you, and talk, about, and talk about how power and authority is derived in Islam. Why don't we start with you, and then I'll go to, to Dahlia. Well, um, first of all, uh, salamun alaikum to the uh, Muslims in the audience. Uh, good morning to the non-Muslims and to the atheists. How the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm... Uh, I hope there will be more such moments of levity in these proceedings because we are talking about very, very weighty issues, obviously. Uh, Jeff, uh, to your question directly, there's theory and then there's reality. In theory, as you pointed out, you know, Islam was never meant to have a clerical class. In many ways, and I realize that this will rub some people the wrong way, but uh, there, there, Islam you know, started off really in a very sort of Protestant mode, though Protestantism came many, many centuries later, having, with, with Muslims having a direct relationship to God. And for all kinds of political reasons, reasons that in fact have corrupted uh, the spirit of Islam, uh, we now are uh, inundated with clerics who uh, call themselves authentic and everybody else inauthentic. Um, The problem, however, with theory is precisely that it is theory. It is not reality. And let me give you a quick explanation of how I've had to take reality into consideration in the work that I do. As many of you know, I'm a reform-minded Muslim and uh, uh, have now a global constituency of younger Muslims, particularly from around the world. And uh, over the last couple of years, um, the biggest uh, question that has come to me through my website is from young Muslims, male and female, who have fallen in love with non-Muslims. Their parents and their imam insist that Islam forbids them from marrying outside the faith. And they come to me in desperation, because that's the only time anybody ever comes to me, in desperation to ask, is this true? Do I really have to give up the love of my life? Because my faith tells me to. Now, the 10th or 11th time that I got this uh, kind of a question, I realized, you know, this is a bigger phenomenon than even I am am, uh, 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 acknowledging. So instead of me merely giving these young people my interpretation of the Quran, because let's face it, what imam is going to care what a spiky-haired, Western-raised, Muslim-Canadian feminist has to say about the Quran, all right? So uh, instead of giving them a personal interpretation, I took this question to a progressive imam in the United States who, by the way, had been trained very traditionally in Saudi Arabia and in Syria. And I asked him to exercise Islam's own uh, tradition of independent thinking known as ijtihad, which we'll get into a little bit later. 
and reinterpret for a 21st century pluralistic context the very verses that have traditionally been used to prohibit uh, women in particular from marrying outside of Islam. He did exactly that. He came up with a two-page defense of interfaith marriage from an Islamic perspective. I posted it on my website in English, and only six months later, the demand for this document was so high that I've had to now get it translated into 19 more languages, including many European languages for young Muslims living in Europe. So the point here is twofold. One is that you know, the internet is certainly making it uh, less difficult to communicate information <clears throat> to uh, a, a global ummah, uh, a worldwide nation of Muslims, particularly of a new generation, that they would otherwise not get uh, from their own households or their own mosques. But at the same time, even I've had to contend with the fact and accept the fact that it is you know, the clerics who still hold the credibility for many, many parents. And one final point before we turn it over to Dahlia. Just so you know what kind of an impact that has had, when I was in Berlin about a year ago giving a lecture, not even about ijtihad, uh, a group of young uh, Muslim women approached me to say, thank you for posting this document online. We are of marrying age. Our parents are trying to force us into loveless marriages with Muslim men whom we don't know, let alone love. And this document has saved us from this fate. Why? Not only because you've posted it in Turkish, Arabic, and uh, German, so at least one of those languages our parents will have to admit they understand and read, but also because it's written by an imam. And that was a very strategically important thing for you to do. Dahlia. Good morning, everyone, and peace be upon you. I guess I'll start with the traditional uh, thinking around where clerical or where or religious authority comes from. And there's this concept, and it's a very important one to Muslims, called ijaza. Ijaza literally means a license, a license to derive law from the principles laid out in the Quran and in the prophetic tradition. This ijaza is obtained through study and scholarship and was always open to women and men. So the highest-ranking female um, scholar in Al-Azhar University, the, the, considered the highest authority in Sunni Islam in Egypt. Uh, her name is Saad Saleh. She's a woman uh, I profile in my book who speaks for Islam. And she has um, one of the highest levels of authority in Islam to interpret law. And this idea of ijaza did not mean a monopoly on the law because it was open to anyone willing to go through the work and the scholarship to obtain this license to interpret, but it assured that we would not have the ishtihad of ignorance that produced Osama bin Laden. Because when we open it up to simply anyone, anyone can interpret the faith and anyone can make law and issue fatwas, what we risk is the ishtihad of ignorance. The other extreme, which is as fatal to the Muslim community, is blind followership, whereby Muslims are so ignorant of their text, so uh, lavish in their, in their uh, simply following anything someone tells them that they simply don't question. They don't even read the Qur'an for themselves. And so between these two extremes is the middle ground whereby we have religious authorities who have gone through the scholarship where they have the, uh, the, the requisite knowledge to interpret. And by the way, they have a hugely vast array of opinions. And at the same time, the general community, which is religiously literate. And this religious literacy is absolutely essential so that people can choose the interpretation that they feel comfortable with. Because at the end of the day, religious interpretation is not binding. And this is really important to understand. It is not simply, it's, it's, very, it's very different um, from, say, uh, an edict by a religious authority because it is a, an opinion that you can either accept or reject and you can choose someone else. It, it's really much more like a medical opinion. So you go to a doctor, 
and they give you their diagnosis. You can go get a second opinion and a third opinion. Now, you shouldn't be able to write your own prescription without going to medical school, but you should be literate enough in medicine to ask the right questions of your doctor, to get the opinion that you feel comfortable with. But just as it is, it is dangerous to simply give anyone the right to write a prescription, it is equally dangerous to give anyone the right to issue a fatwa because that is, in fact, what produced al-Qaeda. Can I, can I have a quick response? You can to, have a very quick response. Yeah. The, the only problem that I find with the medical analogy, and this was actually brought to my attention by a scholar in Indonesia, is that you, know, you can sue uh, a, a doctor who uh, uh, does you harm based on his or her prognosis. We still don't have that ability or that right to sue mullahs and imams in the Muslim world who do our faith and the people within that faith and outside of that faith uh, that kind of harm. My point simply being, it's not meant to be cheeky or clever. My point simply is that I think, Dahlia, we do as Muslims invest far too much authority in what we believe, not know, what we believe is the wisdom of the mullahs and the imams. And that is why, while it's true that not anybody can issue a fatwa, it still has to be emphasized vigorously that all Muslims have the right and indeed the responsibility to exercise independent thinking in ways that make sense to their lives. Uh, let me uh, let me come back to this in, uh, in, in a second, but you've done probably more polling than anyone uh, has ever done in the Muslim world, and your findings are are are, are quite interesting. I'm not going to do them justice here, but m- what I understand you're talking about, and, 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 and we've spoken about this, and, and, and I've read what you've written, your findings might be some of what of a surprise to people in the West. You find that most Muslims, even after 9/11 reject violence. Most Muslims, the vast majority of Muslims around the world, reject extremism. Um, And you find that for those who embrace extremism, a relatively small minority, of course we're talking about a relatively small minority of a huge population, so somewhere in the tens of millions, for for this group of tens of millions who are drawn to radicalism and drawn to violence, uh, that they are they are drawn to that not because of their not because edicts of the religion or the theology of their religion, but because of the political actions of the West mm-hmm. is that a fair characterization? Well, let, I think uh, let me take a step back and, and explain. I think you've said everything you've said. I agree with. You're absolutely right. Uh, the vast majority do not uh, approve of violence, especially attacks on civilians. Um, and as I indicated yesterday, they're no more likely than the American public to approve of attacks on civilians. Those who told us that 9-11 was completely justified and have unfavorable opinions of the United States, who in our book uh, we call politically radicalized, <clears throat> their justifications for that position, because we actually ask them, why do you say that? Why do you think 9-11 was completely justified? Uh, their justifications are purely political in nature. Not a single one of the respondents cited a verse from the Quran, for example, to explain their position on 9-11 being justified. In contrast, those who said it was not justified, that it was wrong, they were citing the Quran. They were uh, explaining their moral objection to terrorism many times uh, as a moral objection rooted in faith. So um, you're right. What we find in our research is that it isn't so much theology that motivates a sympathy for terrorism, but a distorted political ideology. And what's even more interesting, I think, is if you really analyze Osama bin Laden's rhetoric, as I have, what you find is his religious language is quite superficial that he starts out his statements praising God, he ends them by praising the prophet, and in the middle, you have essentially a very um, postmodern political revolutionary ideology, whereby he uh, gets around the prohibition on attacks on civilians by explaining that the American people, yes, Islam prohibits killing civilians in war, and he acknowledges this, 
But the American people are not non-combatants. They are combatants. Why? Because they live in a democracy. And they vote for the leaders that then go and kill Muslims. They pay for those wars with their tax dollars. Therefore, they are complicit and they are not non-combatants. Can I just ask you one question and then we'll have Irshak come in. But uh, I want to push back a little bit on one thing that you said. And yes, I've read all of Osama bin Laden's various speeches and pronouncements and fatwas. Um, and you're right that that middle section of many of them read like, um, like a really, really angry Ralph Nader. Not just a normally angry Ralph Nader. Oh, come on. Uh, no, 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 no. It's true. I mean, when he starts lecturing, no, no, no. When he starts lecturing Americans about greenhouse gases, you, right. you kind of feel like he's lost the plot a little bit. Um, it doesn't do Ralph but, justice. But, I don't <laughs> that, that but, but, but here's the thing. I, I, like, like all of us up here, we've spent a lot of time with Muslim radicals. Um, I remember various conversations I've had in Afghanistan and Pakistan with the Gamazlamiya in, in Egypt, um, where the conversation, mm -hmm. I'm trying to steer the conversation toward politics, and they're sticking to theology. And they're talking about God's desire for a, for a caliphate, for instance. Uh, and they're talking about the immoral ways in which the West objectifies women and how when we take over, we will change that, uh, among many other things. Uh, so so is it, I'm asking, and maybe you could jump in here, is it entirely fair to say that what motivates the radical minority uh, is mainly or solely politics? And then you could respond to that if you want. So the question, so is, the question is to you. No, yeah. it's not fair to say that it's solely politics and that religion plays no role in any of this. And again, because Dalia quite justifiably um, asked us to listen to ordinary people, listen to the voices of ordinary people, uh, and to go with the facts on the ground rather than fear, I will ask you to transcend any fear of political correctness that you may be feeling at this moment, to just let down your own defenses and hear what I'm about to say. Uh, you know, two years ago in Toronto, my city of Toronto in Canada, a group of 17 young Muslim men was arrested by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on allegations that they uh, were plotting to behead the Prime Minister and blow up the Parliament buildings. And uh, what the police did not tell us um, is that these young men called their campaign Operation Badr, B-A-D-R. This refers to the Battle of Badr, which is the very first military campaign that the Prophet and his ragtag army at the time actually achieved. It is the, uh, the battle in which, you know, legend came forth that uh, despite being outmanned and outgunned by the other side, the Prophet won this war. And in, in Islamic lore, it is what transformed uh, merely a prophet, uh, merely a sort of a religious prognosticator into a full-fledged warrior. Now, here's my point. Um, clearly, these young men, whatever the root cause of their discontent living in upper-middle-class Canada, clearly, whatever the root cause, they were motivated in some way by religious symbolism. And I'm not saying that we can reduce what they are doing or what they did to religion, not at all. But I'm saying when we, in our effort not to reduce it, let us also not sanitize. Let us also not erase whatever potential role religion plays. And I give you this only as a very, very concrete example because I find in discussions like this, it's just too easy to throw broad generalizations out there and hope to feed into the uncomfortableness that people feel about actually getting to brass tacks. So throughout this discussion, I warn you and I promise you, I will be using as many concrete examples as I can. Irshad Manji, Canadian feminist and self-described reform Muslim. She is author of The Trouble with Islam Today, a Muslim's call for reform in her faith. She spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival this month. This is word for word from American public media. Is George W. Bush right when he says that Islam is a religion of peace? <laughs> How do you like that framing? Huh? Yeah. That, put, that puts you in a box, huh? <laughs> Um, I mean, well, the broader let, let, yeah, me, yeah. let me answer your question in what actually in, 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 in answering or in responding to Urshad. To say that religion has nothing to do with it would be ridiculous. That's not what I'm saying, in fact. There's a difference between an accessory and a root cause. Okay? Let me explain it this way. When we ask Muslims around the world, 
if religion is an important part of their daily lives, the overwhelming majority, I mean, as high as 99% in Indonesia, 98% in Egypt, even in, uh, in Turkey, it's 86%, say yes, religion is an important part of their daily life. So if religion is the dominant social medium of a society, what do we expect the language, the framing, and the symbolism of any movement to look like? Let's take ourselves 30 years back to the, to the world of the PLO when they were the premier terrorist group and not Al-Qaeda. They were speaking in the language of the then social, the dominant social medium, which was Arab nationalism. What we always forget is someone like Muhammad Yunus, who invented or, or came up with uh, microfinancing. Also, if you read his autobiography, talked about how that was inspired by his faith. We forget that Amr Khalid, who conducted a, uh, a campaign just a few months ago to fight drugs, where millions of people were, were mobilized all over the Arab world, used religious symbolism and religious rhetoric to mobilize. So to say that because these people are using religious symbolism and, and religious rhetoric, it is a, a problem of Islam, is to ignore that all and every, whether you're fighting poverty or illiteracy or female genital mutilation, you're saying it is against Islam to do these things. And Islam demands that we stop or we, we improve or we progress. Because when you look at the data, the, the one thing that people associate most often with the Muslim world is attachment to spiritual and moral values will help with progress. And so anytime people want, anytime any group, whether it's good or evil, wants to get people's attention and mobilize them, they are going to use language that resonates with their audience. Um, so in, in responding to the idea of, of terrorist groups using religious symbolism, of course they do. They would, be, they would be stupid not to, because guess what? They understand their audience, but do we? I think I'd rather the, you ask me a question, Dahlia. I'm, I'm still ruminating on what you've just said. Well, so. let, me, let me talk about Islam being a religion of peace, since we're still... Um, that, that question is such, it's such an interesting framing. Is, is Islam a religion of peace? I think we have to um, answer the question, what is a religion of peace? And, uh, and I would say that a religion of peace is one that prefers peace over war. That is the definition. Then I would say, yes, Islam is a religion of peace. Um, but I, I, am, I personally don't want, as, as a Muslim, this is a personal statement, not as, um, not as a Gallup representative, I don't like Islam being called a religion of peace because it is a religion of life, of balance, of, um, of guidance for a wide variety of facets of life. And to, to label it a religion of peace, the reason it's, it might seem strange, it's definitely better than calling it a religion of war, but it is, it's to reduce it to a very defensive mode. And it, it is to reduce Islam to constantly being on trial, proving itself, rather than for a change, helping people understand what Muslims can actually contribute, not just why they're not a threat. The interesting thing, I think, is, is, is how we in the West sometimes interpret what a moral religion is. We, we, we filter it through the prism of Christianity, uh, because that's the dominant Western religion. Um, and, and when you study the origins of Christianity versus the, the origins of of Islam, you, you notice many, many differences. One of the most noticeable, obviously, is that, is that Jesus went willingly to his death as a martyr, whereas the Prophet Muhammad spent much of his life, part of his life, as a general. Uh, the, the saying is that uh, Muhammad was his own Constantine, in other words, that he, he militarized the religion. Jesus did not militarize his religion. Constantine came along later and militarized it. Um, so the question is, and, and this is the question that's, that's plagued me for years, is, is how 
how relevant is it that Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, the most admired man, obviously, in Islam, uh, led his life as a warrior? How relevant is that to the, the self-creation of, of Muslim guerrillas and terrorists? In other words, when you're a Christian and you're committing violence, you're out and out hypocritical. The, uh, but the question is, how, how relevant is that connection between the Prophet Muhammad and his violence and the violence that we see today? Well, I, I'd like to answer that in, in several, by, sev by explaining several things. Um, first of all, in, in the words of Olivier Waugh, what's important, I mean, and I think this is a very important and profound point. He says, what's important isn't what the Quran says. What's important is what Muslims say it says. Because the Quran is not an agent. It is not a human agent that goes out and flies you know, airplanes through buildings. People do that. And so we have to understand how it's understood by Muslims who are the human agents that are going to go out and, and act. When we look, and the way you find out is by asking Muslims what they believe. And when we do that, we find that Muslims are no more likely, in fact, in many cases, less likely than non-Muslims to approve of violence. So if Muhammad being a warrior contributed to them being more predisposed to violence, then we should have been able to measure that empirically when looking at a scientific survey. Secondly, I think that from, from a Muslim point of view, the fact that Muhammad um, fought wars is not understood as a, uh, a, a reason to militarize, but instead a, a very important example of how one should behave when they are in a position where they must fight a just war. Because just war is a concept that transcends the Abrahamic faiths, at least. Muslims see the fact that the prophet had to fight wars as an advantage in that there is an example of how one conducts a just war. We, as Muslims, because the prophet had to fight wars, have very strict rules about how to conduct a war. You can't chop down trees. You can't kill animals. You can't poison wells. You can't target civilians. These are inherent in our tradition because the prophet fought wars and therefore was able to explain how a war should be justly fought. Dalia Mogahed, head of the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies and co-author of Who Speaks for Islam, she spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival earlier this month. You're hearing her on Word for Word from American public media. Also part of that conversation was Irshad Manji, author of The Trouble with Islam Today. Once again, in theory, uh, the problem and sometimes the opportunity when it comes to reform-minded Muslims is exactly as Dalia has articulately uh, uh, laid out for us, which is that it is we Muslims who interpret not just the Quran, but as she pointed out, the Prophet's life. And on their own, the words of the Quran and the facts of the Prophet's life don't mean much. They mean something when human interpretation enters the picture. And so, for example, and this kind of, I think, nicely ties both your previous question on which I had been ruminating and now uh, Dahlia's uh, interjection, is that this is exactly why, you know, we see young Muslim men and increasingly young Muslim women, um, you know, invoking the Prophet's life uh, when they, for example, leave behind uh, uh, Shaheed videos. I mean, Muhammad Sadiq Khan, videos. martyrdom videos, thank you. Muhammad Sadiq Khan, the ringleader of the July 7th transit bombings in, uh, in, in Britain, before he invoked British foreign policy, before he uh, pointed the finger at Iraq, he first said, Islam is our religion and the prophet is our role model. Now, that has to mean something and it doesn't just mean something to him. It ought to mean something to us in the way that he has so cavalierly decided, as has the group that has helped him get there, to interpret the prophet's life. It didn't come out of nowhere. And they were not wrong from their perspective. They operated with the facts 
on the ground as they saw it. Similarly, Mohamed Bouyeri, uh, the man who, the young uh, uh, Dutch-born Dutch but of Moroccan heritage uh, man who stabbed uh, and killed uh, Theo van Gogh uh, in Amsterdam in 2005, he, when he went on trial, actually said, make no mistake about it, I acted from religious conviction. And he invoked the life of the prophet as part of what convinced him that this is what he had to do. Now, again, absolutely you can shake your head and say, but that's not right. I couldn't agree more. It is not right. Morally speaking, it is not right. But he, hold on a second. We'll have questions in a minute. But he interpreted the prophet's life in a certain way. And he wasn't making up these facts he was thinking about them in a particular context that made sense to his life. Which is why asking whether Islam is a religion of peace or religion of war, it's almost as meaningless a question as, if I may be forgiven for this, who speaks for Islam? You know, it depends on who you're talking to and where you're coming from. And finally, Speaking of the question, who speaks for Islam? You know, part of the reason I find that kind of a question meaningless is that there are so many Muslims around the world, including right here in America, who still don't feel comfortable expressing themselves out loud because they operate in a context of fear. And, you know, I hope we get to the point where we can actually come up with some examples of this. But this is, again, why Dalia is right. Context is important. And it's important not just to analyzing Islam, but also to analyzing Gallup poll results, results that, at least in my view, will never be sufficient to address the question who, who speaks for Islam, because most of the people, in fact, all of the people I gather that you guys spoke with, were not comfortable enough to step forward and say, just as much as Islam needs to respect, excuse me, just as much as the West needs to respect Islam, and us Muslims, we Muslims have to start respecting each other. Well, Actually, you know, they, uh, they did say yeah, that. I want to give you a chance to, to, to respond to that. And then I want to go to a, a, another question, which uh, I think you can answer anecdotally from your personal experience, and you can answer from your personal experience and from some data. Um, and that's the question of what is a moderate Muslim? We hear this term all the time. If they were only be more moderate, or those guys are okay because they're moderate. But I don't think I, I myself don't have a baseline definition of what what it means. If it's even even a meaningful term. But before we do that, if you want to take a, a second to to talk about what you just said, Dahlia. Well, I guess. I'll start by saying that, um, you know, go back to, to the point of, I've created this, this model, and it's, it comes from my, my scientific background, where we're, we actually study radicalization of cells, and, and cells, you know, in the body do become radicalized. And what happens when cells become radicalized is they take on the medium that they're in. So if you have a group of cells in blue dye, when they become radicalized, they're still covered with that blue dye. And they, they look like the blue dye. And if you look at just the radicalized cells, it's very easy to think, as a scientist, ah, it's the blue dye that made them radicalized, instead of realizing that all the other cells that are not radicalized, still in your Petri dish, are also covered by the blue dye. And that's exactly the case when we look at the data. The 7% who think that 9-11 is completely justified, about 91% of them say religion is an important part of their daily life. Guess what? The other 93%, 93% of them say religion is an important part of their daily life. They're statistically identical. So I, I go back to the idea, religion is not absent when people become politically radicalized, it will necessarily take on a religious motif because that is their dominant social currency. Um, to, to ask who speaks for Islam, I think the, the question is rhetorical. The question is an open question that I think we need to answer because for too long, a vocal fringe is the only voice we heard. It was the only voice that was speaking for Islam. And we need to broaden this discourse and listen to the vast majority who are telling us that they reject that extreme, 
And so I think who speaks for Islam is, is the vital question because for too long, only a small handful have been speaking for the faith. Irshad, do you want to deal with that and talk about moderation? Well, I, in, in discussing what I see as a moderate Muslim, I will hopefully address some of what um, Dalia has just said. You know, um, in this country, as in many countries around the world, uh, the search is on for the moderate Muslim. Um, and I continue to get asked the question five years after my book came out, you know, where are the other voices like yours? But I say something in response that may be a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, I'm not a moderate Muslim as I'm sure Dahlia appreciates, not moderate at all. I'm a reform-minded Muslim. And for as important as it is to make the distinction between uh, extremists and moderates, I believe it is equally important to make the distinction between moderates and reformists. Now let me make that distinction. Moderate Muslims certainly denounce violence that is uh, uh, taking place under the banner of Islam. I do not dispute that for a second. The problem is that moderate Muslims too often deny the role that, viol- that religion plays in the very violence that is committed in its name. You often hear self-described moderate Muslims say, the next time a Muslim group takes responsibility for a kidnapping or a bombing or a beheading, you will hear self-described moderates say, Islam has nothing to do with this. The problem here is not just that this statement is dishonest, as actually we've both agreed already on stage, but worse, such a statement is dangerous. And it's dangerous because in their denial, uh, self-described moderate Muslims, um, in effect, not intentionally, but in effect, hand over the ground and the opportunity for theological reinterpretation to those with already malignant intentions. In effect... Moderate Muslims say to the would-be abusers of power, you guys get to walk away with the show. We're not going to come back at you with bold and competing reinterpretations of the very verses that these terrorists have used to justify their violence. And the reason we can't come back at you with bold competing reinterpretations is that if we did, well, we'd be acknowledging that religion really does play a role. And since the Quran is perfect and it is we Muslims who are imperfect, we can't go there. Reform-minded Muslims, I'll just finish up, Delia. Reform-minded Muslims say, hold up, we have to go there. Just as liberal Christians and liberal Jews have reinterpreted the violent verses in their scriptures, we must do the same for our scripture. And what that means is taking the Quran out of the 7th century tribal time capsule in which even many moderates have left it in and update the interpretations for a 21st century pluralistic context, not unlike what this progressive imam did vis-a-vis interfaith marriage. And whenever I make this case to Muslims, the first um, challenge I hear is, you're saying that we need to rewrite the Quran. Not at all. Rewriting is very different from reinterpreting. I'm saying we keep the words that are already there. Obviously, I have no authority to suggest that the Quran ought to be rewritten. But there is sufficient ambiguity within the Quran that we can rethink many passages in the context in which we now exist. And finally, for those Muslims who say, even then, Islam forbids this from happening, I remind them, that that is to say, it forbids you from reinterpreting because the words are what they are. You must take them literally. I say to them, well, Let's take a look at the Qur'an literally then. Let's play your game. If you take it literally, you see that the Qur'an contains three times as many verses calling on us to think and analyze and reflect than verses that tell us only what is right or only what is wrong. In other words, three times as many verses encouraging critical thinking than blind submission. By that standard alone, I would argue that reform-minded Muslims are at least as authentic as the moderate mainstream and quite possibly more constructive. Dahlia, as you answer, as you answer her, her, her statement, could you weave into your, your answer an answer to the, to the following question? I ask you this as, as a pollster. What percentage of Muslims in the world and then separately in, in America uh, would qualify to, to meet Irshad's definition of a reform-minded Muslim. You know, I think the, the differentiation between a moderate Muslim and a reform-minded Muslim is an interesting one. Where I would differ with Irshad is that the bold reinterpretation of the verses that talk about violence have already occurred 
they occurred with the terrorists. The terrorists are reinterpreting these verses. The second part of your question was, was what is a moderate Muslim? Um, again, how do, I, 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 how do I count them? Well, we have to first define them. My definition of a mainstream Muslim is one who does not believe in violence. It's, I mean, you can have any kind of theological outlook you want. You can be reform-minded. You can be very conservative. You can be very traditional. As long as you stick to the universally accepted standards of human rights when it comes to targeting civilians, you fall into this category. Now, that category, I, I don't actually like the word moderate Muslim, even though I used it in my, in my book. Uh, I prefer mainstream Muslim because moderate Muslim implies moderately Muslim, being less passionate about faith than the extremists who are the real zealots. But with, with other religious people who, whether they're Jewish or Christian, they hate the word moderate Christian, moderate Jew. I am not moderate. I am passionate about moderation. <laughs> Ershad, quick response, and then I want to move on to just one other subject. Uh, well, I mean, you make a very compelling case, Dahlia, for you know, why it is not necessary nor even desirable to be reinterpreting passages that, in fact, the terrorists as you claim, are reinterpreting. Therefore, we must sort of, you know, just uh, return to the classical interpretation. But two points about that. One is clearly the classical interpretation didn't convince them. You know, and therefore, we have to actually, like it or not, pay attention to the reality on the ground that there is a small but very, very disproportionately powerful group of people mm -hmm. that is, in fact, doing harm to the faith of Islam and to real people, both Muslim and non-Muslim. To simply say they're the ones who are wrong and we're the ones who are right isn't going to save anybody from their harm. Therefore, it is important to take what they have been doing and then figure out, and I'm not a theologian, so I'm not the one who's going to be doing this, but figure out what it is that they have been doing wrong vis-a-vis -vis interpretation and clarify that for the vast majority of Muslims. But here's the problem. Okay, but here's the problem. In fact, Muslim theologians have not been doing that. I mean, I know that you say that they have, but I've read exactly what you've read. I come away with a very, very different conclusion. And I'll just give you, again, quick and concrete example. You know, chapter 5, verse 32 of the Quran expressly states that if you kill a human being, uh, uh, it is like killing all of mankind. But here's the kicker. Here's the catch. Unless you kill that human being as punishment for murder or other villainy in the land, that clause, beginning with, the word, uh, beginning with the word accept, has become an escape hatch for terrorists. They use exactly those words, and I'll tell you something. Every time I go to a moderate cleric to ask him, you know, and it is a him all the time, right? Tell me what you do with those words. I only hear nothing. Literally, we do nothing with those words. Well, the problem with doing nothing is some other people are doing something with them. Mm -hmm. That's why they have to be reinterpreted. But I would, I would, I've, I've studied classical Quranic interpretation, and that except verse refers to capital punishment by the state after a trial. It's, it refers specifically to the, uh, the state's right to, to capital punishment if someone actually commits murder. That is what the classical interpretation is. And so the fact that the clerics you've spoken to haven't been able to respond with something like that and haven't been able to get their voices out to young people who are reading that verse and thinking that it means vigilanteism, that they can go and haphazardly choose who they want to kill, is, is certainly not the fault. It, it, the, the answer isn't reinterpreting. The reinterpretation has already occurred by those who have taken it and, and used it in their own way without knowledge. The point is, this is the problem of lack of religious literacy, that these young people can be preyed on by people with political motivation. The final question I have for you is the practical question, which is what is to be done to get us, get the United States out of the, out of the problem that we have with large swaths of the Muslim world, a, a smaller swath that's actively engaged in terrorism, a larger swath that doesn't seem to like us very much. Um, 
Irshad, you seem to be arguing that the that that the, the, the answer lies within Islam and that a reform within Islam will help lift us up out of these problems. Dalia, based on what I've read from your book and your, your, your studies, you seem to think that concrete foreign policy changes on the part of the United States and the West will ameliorate these issues. One minute each. Deal with those. One minute, really. I, I want to make a case for the... Um, the danger of fixing what is considered not broken, um, i.e. the classical understanding of Islam, is that once we open the door of reinterpretation of verses that have already been clearly interpreted to not promote violence as understood by the vast majority of Muslims who, are, who would consider themselves traditional or um, orthodox and not reform-minded, is that opening this process of ishtihad of the non-licensed um, is it gives credibility to those who interpret those verses today in an unorthodox way to justify violence. When we say it's okay to open this up, then they will say, well, now that we've democratized Ishtihad, great. Our interpretation is just as good as Sheikh Ali Goma, the Grand Mufti of Egypt, who has told us for all this time that these verses don't mean violence. Now we're all on equal footing. He has 30 years of scholarship. We have none, but we are equal in our ability to uh, tell the Ummah what Islam is telling them to do. So I would go back to, we have licenses for um, selling real estate. And I've just, I'm, my, my call to, to all of us is to have enough respect for Islamic scholarship to consider it equal to the medical field, where you need to go to school and get a license before you write a prescription. Deal very quickly with my yes. question on the concrete solution to Yes, the concrete solution. What is happening, according to our analysis, is that people become politically radicalized, according to their own words, not mine, and then take on religion as a mobilizing and justifying um, accessory to the actions that they want to commit. So we have to deal with the issue at its core. The core are political issues. And instead of trying to reformulate Islam, which, is the, which should be the job of Muslims and not America, we should instead give people an alternative because the real battle going on in the Muslim world is not a battle over the soul of Islam. It is a battle about the road to reform. People want change. We have to let them have options toward that change that don't involve violence. Valid and viable options to a different way into the future. Arshad, very quickly. Um, agreed that foreign policy has to change, but not in the conventional way that you're always told about. Uh, f you know, it's not just about Israel-Palestine. It is also about, for example, liberating the entrepreneurial talents of women in the Muslim world through microfinance, something that Dalia referred to. And it's a policy plank that I believe all rich countries around the world, including rich Arab countries, ought to be buying into. You know, we talked about the Prophet Muhammad's life, and Dalia quite rightly pointed out it's how you interpret his life that matters not just the facts on the ground. Well, one of the ways that Muslim women in Southeast Asia, thanks to the Grameen Bank, which is the bank that Muhammad Yunus started to give loans to the poorest of the world's poor, one of the ways they've been using or interpreting the Prophet Muhammad's life is by reminding their husbands that the Prophet Muhammad himself was married to a wealthy, self-made businesswoman for whom the prophet worked for many, many years. She was his boss. And so, my dear husband, if you are going to be a pious Muslim man, you won't just grow a long beard. You'll be very open to letting me work for myself.
Uh, and that is a, uh, uh, an idea, a big idea, if I may say, at this festival, that the next U.S. administration, whoever leads it, uh, I believe ought to be considering very seriously. As for reform within the Muslim world uh, and among Muslims, there is a concept that you've heard at least a couple of times about uh, on this panel called ijtihad. And, while, and this is Islam's own tradition of critical thinking and independent reasoning. While it is true that you simply cannot let anybody issue a fatwa, it is equally true that if you leave uh, theological interpretation only to a very thin and rarefied layer of elites, then I believe, Dalia, all we are doing is uh, cementing or reinforcing this pattern of submissiveness, not of submission, of submissiveness that we Muslims have had to God's self-appointed ambassadors for the last several hundred years. And frankly, that's not going to change much, which is why, as a final thought before we get to the questions, just as further education for all of you, I have brought with me a scholarly article, not written by me, hence scholarly, um, that is also uh, uh, taking the concept of ijtihad and explaining why this tradition has been not just the right but the responsibility of ordinary Muslims throughout Islamic history. Funnily enough, Dalia emphasizes classical interpretation. This document does too, and yet it reaches quite different conclusions than she does. Once again, a lovely reminder that it's all in the interpretation. Irshad Manji, creator of a new PBS documentary titled Faith Without Fear, We've been hearing a conversation she had with Dalia Mogahid, executive director of the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies and co-author of the book, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. Their discussion was moderated by the Atlantic Magazine national correspondent Jeffrey Goldberg. It took place at the Aspen Ideas Festival, which the Atlantic Magazine sponsors. If you missed part of this hour's conversation on Islam, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and hear speakers such as Tim Weiner on the CIA, Fareed Zakaria on the post-American world, and Sam Harris, author of The End of Faith. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pancava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.